0: The Guardian Ooh, Wake up Cream a teeth. Make a cup of coffee Do some exercise Start work oh, Sit down and watch some telly Go to bed And do it all again the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Here in the UK, we are a month into yet another lockdown. Many of us will have baked banana bread, made a sourdough starter, sweated along to endless yoga videos, zoomed and zoomed, and begun wondering how exactly we're going to keep ourselves mentally healthy in the coming weeks. There are some people we might be able to take inspiration from. Astronauts, Arctic research scientists, even submariners, those who elect to head into isolation and undergo highly stressful situations. How do they keep themselves positive and motivated whilst being cooped up?
1: They do lots of things to try and break up the experience so they have like little milestones that they're aiming to to get to Uh, they do a lot of planning around celebrations and you know when they hit milestones they really make a big deal out of it
0: i'm madeline finley and this is science weekly to get advice i called somebody who has studied human behavior performance and health in intense situations
1: Hi, I'm Nathan Smith. I'm a research fellow at the University of Manchester and I do research on humans in extreme environments.
0: Nathan, you've studied how some of the most isolated people deal with the challenge of being cooped up together as well as being away from their friends and family. Tell us about the kinds of groups you've looked at.
1: So for five or six years now, I've been working with these groups that we refer to as isolated, confined and extreme populations. So this is people that are living in places like the Antarctic and the Arctic at remote research stations, submariners that might be deployed on a submarine and living beneath the surface of the ocean for months on end, Um, and including also work that we do with astronauts on the International Space Station, and others that take part in similar types of remote activity. So that might be people going on expeditions to big mountains or crossing deserts, rowing across oceans. These are all the sorts of people that I'm interested in kind of studying, learning from and potentially extrapolating some of the lessons to help people cope with extreme stress in other forms of life.
0: The people that you've studied, the astronauts or people at Arctic research stations, they're a very particular kind of person, you know, the person who's willing to go down to the bottom of the ocean in a submarine. How well can we extrapolate from these examples?
1: These people are obviously, you know, they're a, a unique population. That's why I'm interested in studying. They choose to put themselves under quite into quite difficult circumstances. But I think some of the, the psychological principles that allow these people to thrive in those environments are not that dissimilar to some of the things that we focus on in, in other more, we might say, normal areas of life. Ultimately, when we do our work, and we're doing work at the moment thinking about how we sustain life on you know voyages to Mars and, and other places that are going to be extremely demanding, it comes down to three rules that we hang our our decisions off. And that is, what can we do to make people feel like they're in control or that they have a sense of autonomy, that they almost have the volition to make decisions? How can we make sure people feel competent and effective at what they're doing? And how can we make sure people feel and have some kind of trust and relationships and connectedness with other people? Some of these people that choose to go to these environments might have the kinds of personality or the kinds of individual differences that once they're in those places, allow them to make sure that those things are achieved. There will be some kind of individual variations in that. But I think using those um, three basic psychological needs is what we call them as a a rule of thumb, allow us to maybe move some of this information across these different contexts.
0: All those people, whether it's people in remote research stations or astronauts or people down in submarines, one of the issues that I'm sure they have to deal with is monotony. The same wars, the same routines, and it's a factor that is probably similar to most people's experience of lockdown. So how do we alleviate monotony a little bit, bearing in mind that we are stuck inside?
1: I guess the first thing I'd say is, you know, these people choose to go and do these activities. So it's not a direct comparison to what we're encountering. But, you know, the experience, the psychological experience of almost sensory deprivation, you know, this unchanging landscape, unchanging environment that we're being stuck in poses um, certain challenges. So there's the repetition. um, And then there's, you know, in some cases, in some of the environments we look at, boredom is is an issue kind of under arousal. So, you know, these groups, they they do lots of things to try and break up the experience. So they have like little milestones that they're aiming to to get to. They do a lot of planning around celebrations and you know, when they hit milestones, they really make a big deal out of it. And we can go back to, you know, Shackleton and Scott's exploration of the Antarctic to to see how they cope with some of these things. You know, they they put on theatre shows, they use the arts to try and entertain themselves. And then today, similarly, when people go to these places, you know, they they have um, video nights, film nights. They have they play board games. They do lots of stuff uh, focused around entertainment um, to try and kind of break up the the actual physical um, constraints or the conditions that they're in. A lot of the time, it's about being creative and how you can make the most of the resources that you have to hand, um, and, and try and celebrate those. Almost those little wins, those little goals that you're you're achieving, and that takes a bit of effort and attention. You know, it's easy. And you know, in our household here, we've we've sort of experienced times where we've been like, oh, it just feels like Groundhog Day. But there's certainly a concerted effort to try and find things to celebrate, to try and find the the things that we can enjoy. And you know, on on the ISS, the the astronauts, that's a very proactive thing that they do. They purposely try and find things to celebrate. Um, usually over some a shared meal as an example so they'll they'll kind of come together over food to really mark milestones any kind of birthdays any kind of cultural events in the calendar as a way of just having things to look forward to whatever it is that gives you that slight positive emotional experience which is probably not the right term to use in a pandemic but is contagious you know when you have these regular bursts of positive emotion it broadens and builds your repertoire to stay happy and healthy
0: Having shared moments as well must foster a kind of team spirit and help everyone bond. How important is this when you've got a group of people all cooped up together for weeks and even months on end?
1: Team cohesion is something that is a as a key um, process that allows teams to perform effectively. And you know, if, if you perform effectively as a team, almost then the, the cohesion is enhanced by as a byproduct. So there's this almost like positive cycle that comes. Um, in cohesive teams, yeah, some people think it's a it's something that just happens. But actually, the teams that I've worked with, or the teams that I've studied in these extreme places, they very carefully think about how to craft that. They they spend time considering. You know, as an example, they they'll sit down and they'll write shared goals or shared. Um, they'll have like a you know shared values that they identify that before they go into an extreme place. They've actually, as a group, sat down and gone, these are the things that we want to live to or they want, we want to live up to when we're in these places. You know, we want to be kind to each other. We want to think about the other person. So they have these kind of values that they produce as a group. Um, it is one example of where they, they're very aware that this is such an important factor, not only for having a good time, but also for you know, survival in these places. If you're only with five other people in the middle of Antarctica, then you're very dependent on what the other people do for staying safe and well.
0: On the other side of this, it's not always easy to be in such close and constant contact with your roommate, partner or children even. What's the best way to manage this proximity?
1: (laughs) It's a very good question. I'm hesitant to say the best way, but some of the ways that we try and support people when they're living in close proximity with people, it's about navigating being a good person to live with so trying to think about how what you do impacts upon other people and you're know, trying to maintain that kind of empathy for others and hopefully they'll, they'll maintain that empathy for you and, and some of it's around having those conversations you know the actually being proactive again and being explicit about you know, this this may be where well, at times we may get on each other's nerves but how are we going to navigate those um, conflicts sometimes it's about being able to manage and resolve conflict effectively. So this, that kind of follows on. When we talk to astronauts about this issue, they're very clear about you know, if someone's feeling really grumpy, the last thing you want to do is tip them over the edge and actually cause all that argument. Uh, at least some control over when you bring issues up, when you have difficult conversations, trying not to fan the flames. You know, it's easier said than done, but this is something that's practiced by the people that go to these environments. If there's a chance to create a bit of private space, even if it's just a little corner that you can go and sit and read a book in without people interrupting you, or whatever it is that you're doing, a little bit of quiet time, then that can be helpful too.
0: It's interesting you say about not pushing people over the edge. Why is it that a situation like lockdown can really intensify tensions? I mean, the first ever attempted murder on the continent of Antarctica occurred when a scientist at a research station allegedly tried to stab his colleague after supposedly the colleague kept giving away the endings to books, which I think even the most avid readers amongst us would argue is quite an overreaction.
1: We call it a pressure cooker effect. If you think about the people in these environments, they're having to, on a day-by-day basis for a long time, potentially manage lots of different types of stressful demands and obviously you know the social aspects of these situations are, are very challenging in and of themselves but that person might also have been struggling with sleep issues as a result of the environment they were in you know there might be some other disruptive things going on around their their life down in antarctica so we, we call it a cluster effect so there's of layers and layers of different types of stressful demand and at some point if you keep adding stresses to a, an already full stress bucket um, it's going to tip over and clearly there's you know, something happened there that made this person behave in a way that's obviously uh, not ideal in these environments or anywhere.
0: Another difficulty of being cooped up in the same place, doing the same things over and over, can be keeping motivation. And I think in this lockdown particularly, many of us are struggling with the feeling of being unmotivated and perhaps even quite down. Why do you think it's really hit this time around?
1: When we study groups that live in these places, it's it's kind of normal to go through these sort of peaks and troughs in, in factors like motivation, uh, mood, emotion, that sort of stuff. You know, it's, it's normal to experience ups and downs. A colleague and I were talking about this particular period the other day. Throughout the outbreak of the pandemic, up to until the vaccine really came into view, it almost felt like there was no real known end point So we didn't have a good idea when things were fully going to reopen and become a little bit more freed up a little bit. But once the vaccine came into view and we had this idea of there's this kind of light at the end of the tunnel, there was a a real optimism there. And then that boundary slowly got pushed back and back and back in extreme places. You know, when people are encountering setbacks continuously and there's sort of obstacles that keep blocking them, it's a fairly normal response for the kind of motivation to wane a little bit as they feel like they're in this period of um, almost as far from the end of the challenge that they're encountering as they were from the start. So it's this middle period or third period that can be really difficult. We actually call this the third quarter phenomenon in our studies, which is a uh, probably more anecdotal than scientific idea or phenomenon, but it, it is something that keeps coming up in people's accounts when they talk about these types of challenge.
0: Nathan, other groups you've looked at are people who experience high-stress situations like medics in war zones. And unfortunately, here in the UK, our healthcare workers will be having to deal with prolonged levels of extreme stress and activity. What kind of challenges in terms of their psychology and mental health will they be facing?
1: We did a little bit of work at the start of the um, coronavirus pandemic when it really came into full effect last March and April um, and we produced some resources on the website supporttheworkers.org and it was a collaboration that we did with Salford Royal in, in Manchester um, and then we had input from you know, 30 plus scholars around the world that do studies on humans under extreme stress. So we were guided by the, the clinicians in terms of the topics that they were interested in and it was things like making effective decisions under pressure, managing disrupted sleep, what what can we do to make sure that we're managing fatigue and tiredness effectively, team dynamics, when you're having to work in quite rapidly forming teams, people that you don't know very well. And some of this work did touch on this, this topic of resilience, which um, I'm hesitant to really talk about in the context of healthcare work, because, you know, it's often a cop out of, we need to make people more resilient. Um, But you know, this idea of, being able to monitor and understand the stressful experiences that people are having it does help us understand what sort of things we might be able to do to alleviate some of the, that stress and help people stay happy and healthy as best as possible. Coming up, you know, we've seen lots in the news around issues of moral injury and, and potential post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so clearly there's going to be a significant psychological toll faced by our healthcare workers, and hopefully they'll get the support they need in the next months and years to come.
0: For everyone right now, but particularly healthcare workers who are much more likely to come into contact with COVID-19, there is this sense of constant danger and threat. Are there any strategies that you've come across to deal with this kind of experience and the feelings that having this constant danger might cause?
1: So this is sort of hypervigilance to threaten in the environment, especially when it's quite uncertain, you know, that can pose these kind of chronic responses. One of the things we looked at fairly early in this pandemic was around accurate threat perception. So, you know, when is a threat really a threat? And when is it actually that we think it's a threat, but it's not? It's trying to be able to maintain that flexibility to adjust our threat perceptions, um, depending on the context that we're in. Because some environments or some situations we find ourselves in, yes, contracting COVID is maybe a really high likelihood threat, but in others, it, it may be much less. And if we take the protective procedures and we follow them closely, so we do all the, the things that have been suggested as keeping us safe, then we can minimize that, that threat or that risk um, to a, a level where actually we we're able to just put it to, to one side.
0: Throughout studying these groups, you must have seen a lot of techniques for coping with isolation and stress. Are there any which you've used in your own life?
1: We've done lots, actually, during the lockdown. Our son was nine months old when um, we went into lockdown. So we did quite a lot of kind of trying to keep things interesting, lots of little celebrations as a family. We put aside time to eat together every night and have that kind of shared meal time Certainly my wife and I chatted about, you know, how we're going to communicate effectively. And we did that very explicitly, you know, having to spend, even though we'd been together for sort of 10 years, having to spend all that time cooped up together in the same place, we sort of knew at the start that there probably would be times where you were getting on each other's nerves. So we'd, we'd sort of chatted about how we we're going to make sure that that stays on the side of friendly rather than hostile. I think it would have been um, slightly strange if I didn't pull on some of the stuff we'd done in our own life to to kind of manage that.
0: Thanks again to Nathan for coming on the podcast and giving us all a reason to find an excuse for a celebration, a slice of cake, or maybe just a moment of pause. If you want to find out more about Nathan's work, do visit the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And just before I go... If you are looking for some entertainment to boost your morale during this lockdown, we've just launched a new six-part series called Reverberate, which explores the incredible stories from around the world of when music shook history. Each weekly episode uncovers the unique role music has played in framing social and political change. The series begins with the tale of an English musician who became an overnight pop star in Hong Kong, only to discover he was the face of a huge new protest movement against China. You can subscribe to Reverberate on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it from us this week. See you again on Tuesday. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com podcasts.